Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Jay Rosen takes a look at health care issues in 2021. Matt Kelly considers the Biden administration executive order on cybersecurity. Jonathan Marks takes a look at the intersection of governance, fraud, and corporate culture. Jonathan Armstrong considers the current state of the SFO. Shoutouts and rants follow the commentary. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we have the quartet of Jay Rosen, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and Jonathan Marks. So, Mr. Rosen, what has been on your mind? Uh, Some of my affiliated monitors, colleagues, uh, took a look at healthcare expectations for 2021, and I'd like to share a little bit of their thoughts. On May 5th, Jess Kaplan hosted an episode of AMI's Integrity Through Compliance podcast. He was joined by his fellow managing directors, Jim Ann Liott and Dion Lomax, to discuss what they expect healthcare industry to look like in 2021 and beyond. There were two key subjects that they considered. One was the continued ascent of telemedicine, and two was the relaxed antitrust laws that existed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the past year, we've seen an expansion in the use of new technologies and new strategies for delivering healthcare and expansion in insurance coverage for those services. There have been some challenges involved in this, particularly for state regulatory authorities, because they've had to deal with the question of whether it's permissible for someone who's licensed in one state to deliver services via telehealth to a patient who may be located in another. History tells us that when you see an expansion in services and healthcare, and particularly great coverage and access to Medicare and Medicaid funds to pay for those services, you're going to see fraudsters trying to take advantage. Jim was reminded of a case from several years ago. His client had sort of an interesting concept. They were going to use vans for fluoroscopy equipment on board and go to nursing homes and do evaluations of patients who might have swallowing difficulties rather than forcing the nursing homes to send those residents out to hospitals for that kind of testing. One morning, the owner got to his office and he discovered that it was surrounded by a dozen heavily armed FBI agents with automatic weapons. He was charged with healthcare fraud. As part of the settlement with the government, he was forced to divest himself of ownership interest in the company, but he was allowed to sell it to his wife who knew nothing about the healthcare industry And for more than two years, she required some very intensive support in terms of developing an internal compliance program, meeting billing requirements, and figuring out how she had to document her services and so forth. Ultimately, the company failed, but it was because the business model didn't work. Jim's big message to everybody out there is that if you're entering into the industry, understand that regulatory environment is very complex and you need sound advice from trusted sources to navigate your way through the environment successfully. Next, Jessie asked Dion about her predictions of prospects 
for mergers and acquisitions and joint venture activity in the healthcare industry in the coming months and years. To backtrack a bit, shortly after the pandemic hit, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission came together to issue a joint statement that essentially acknowledged the unprecedented cooperation in what would be required in healthcare industry to ensure the continue continuity of supply to help ensure certain sectors or populations receive services. The feds also relaxed some of the regulatory requirements around the merger review process, and they developed some expedited procedures and processes for the review of proposed collaborations. Finally, they allowed for an expedited review of a business review procedure at the DOG, DOJ rather, and an advisory opinion from the FTC. Well, what should healthcare providers, particularly those who are not as familiar with the regulatory environment, do to protect their investments from compliance risks? As an antitrust expert, Dion shared her insights into hedging against the antitrust enforcement risks, and this would also translate well into protecting against other healthcare compliance risks. First and foremost, make sure that there is a legitimate reason to collaborate. Parties should make sure that all of the activities that are proposed that they're engaging in are designed and tailored to fulfill the precise objectives of the venture as you outline them from the start of the joint venture agreement. The bottom line is that you, at least from an antitrust perspective, want to be certain there's a pro-competitive purpose for the underlying venture, and that's just a starter. The second thing you want to do is you really want to make sure that the meetings or discussions that are occurring regarding the collaboration or venture document the purpose for each and every meeting and instance when you're coming together with a rival. If you want to make sure there's an appropriate agenda and that the meeting participants actually adhere to that agenda, so if questions arise later, you will have contemporaneous evidence of the purpose and what presumably occurred at the meeting. You also want to make sure that executives or employees who participate in these meetings have an understanding of how to extract themselves, so to speak, from a conversation that veers off into some type of red flag area. In Dion's experience, she used to counsel clients to make a noisy exit, literally spill coffee on somebody, pound the table and say, this is the problem I'm leaving now. And at the end of the day, you just want to make sure that if there's 10 other people in the room, that they all remember who left the meeting and which company they were affiliated with. Finally, you want to remember that there is a limited purpose to the joint activity. In some situations, joint collaborations or joint arrangements, particularly if it's around COVID, there's a time limit to that. And so parties should remain mindful of this and make sure that they steer clear of using that joint collaboration to do other things or engage in things that are unrelated to the purpose of the objective of the collaboration. Dion closed with three quick tips. First, you want to make sure everyone within the organization is committed to adhering to the law, whether that's antitrust, fraud and abuse, what have you, that you're committed to adhering that everyone from the board of directors to senior management, to sales reps, and even human resources. Second, you should also make sure that you're actively documenting your compliance efforts along the way. And thirdly, you want to conduct routine audits and antitrust risk assessments to test the program's effectiveness. You can do this on your own, or you can hire an independent outfit, somebody like Affiliated Monitors, to just make sure that you're kicking the tires to make sure the program is effective. 
And I think this will help a provider or anyone in the healthcare industry tweak the programs as necessary to ensure its ongoing effectiveness. So from dawn raids to flying coffee cups while hastily exiting a merger discussion, 2021 looks like it will continue to be a year of change led by new technologies as well as by continued M&A activity. Jesse, Dion, and Jim will return on June 2nd with part two of this podcast, where they will speak with a guest attorney who's an expert on representing healthcare companies with issues both before federal and state enforcement agencies. Gentlemen. Jay, I have a question. Uh, the potential for fraud and abuse will, or do you believe, or your colleagues believe the potential for fraud and abuse will continue with the amount of money that's being pumped into the economy, not simply for uh, uh, to boost the economy, but specifically in the healthcare industry and in Medicaid and Medicare. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There is just so much money that you've alluded to that's flowing through the system, whether it's PPP or PPE. But uh, as I quoted in uh, my remarks, you have uh, so many fraudsters throughout there, and this is just an opportunity for them in basically uh, a new vertical to use some of those tried and true tricks that um you know, have been used successfully before. And if you just follow HHS and um, the IG reports, there are people, we, it seems like either on a daily or weekly basis, who are being brought up on charges of fraud, waste, and abuse. Jonathan Marks, what's on your mind? Tom, uh, I guess we're going to talk about governance, this fraud, and corporate culture for recorded. today. It seems to be a hot topic, so might as well just deep dive into that. Um, recently Jay Rosen, do you have a rant and or shout out for us? In, in regards to this topic, Tom, because there's been a lot of conversation recently shout around a lot of different things related to governance and to fraud the go, and corporate the greatest culture. Of all time, and so, Tom you know, at Brady, first glance, the relationship between an organization's fraud risk and its corporate culture might seem obvious, but, mass, you know, even a casual observer is likely to assume that you know, it's in like high pressure results driven organizations with a culture that tolerates or even encourages people Tom to cut corners and find loopholes and on a local Boston at any radio cost station is bound to be a greater risk of financial reporting fraud and other risks. I started and we all know that a root cause of many major scandals and frauds and the dysfunction in the organization's culture coming up here to make our recent history actually showing us numerous examples. However, what I'm seeing in many cases is the links between organization, corporate culture and fraudulent activity are not straightforward or even clear-cut. In fact, you know, the role that an organization's underlying culture plays in contributing to fraud risk is often subtle and, and, and sometimes difficult to quantify, to be quite candid, just as the culture itself can be challenging to define with specificity. So, you know, there are a few management teams, if any, that set out to establish at least deliberately dysfunctional organizational cultures or a culture that allows fraud to thrive or encourages unethical behavior. I said some, there are those that are the exception. To put it another way, they don't set out to usually fail. So the critical question, the way I see it, is how directors and executives, senior leadership can develop a culture that reduces the risk of fraudulent activities and encourages ethical behaviors. The first step towards addressing that question is to develop a general understanding of what corporate culture really is, you know, what factors contribute to it, and the role it plays in effective risk management. And so, you know, we go back to this definition concept again, you know, definition of internal control, definition of, you know, organizational culture or corporate culture. 
that that varies widely from a simple expression as you know the way we do things here to more complex and technical explanations you know if you're looking at coso or you're looking at something else you know they may define it a little bit differently so you know one of the things that i really wanted to get into was you know uh really understanding what was out there so we did a little bit of research and we looked at some different things, but I think you really need to start with a diagnosis like any, you know, like any good practitioner might. So, you know, although corporate culture can't be created, it certainly can be influenced and shaped. It's it's a really tough road, but it certainly can. And for individual companies, you know, uh, conducting confidential surveys and, you know, can often provide management or the management team with some information, particularly when respondents you know, are assured of their, you know, anonymity, but it's not the be all end all. And so, you know, when you're looking at a diagnosis, there are a lot of different things that you could certainly do. Looking at hotline data, you know, looking at internal audit reports, looking at compliance uh, successes and failures and the like. And so, you know, we need to really look beyond the obvious sometimes to really see some of those subtle signs, which is really what I was trying to drive at, you know, and having conversations with boards and senior leadership you know, it's not it's not the blinding glimpse of the obvious sometimes. It's really some of those things that are hidden in plain sight. So you may have to take a more sophisticated approach, you know, to and, you know, I found a couple of different things which I thought were pretty interesting. Um, there's um, there's a, um, uh, a there's a widely used huge, huge, huge te text, which I think I mentioned in my article called Diagnosing and Changing Organizational organizational culture, which advocates using a questionnaire known as the Organizational Culture Assessment Instrument, the OCAI. And uh, the questionnaire asks participants to respond to just six items. There are no right or wrong answers, of course, you know, but still the authors contend that employees' responses will provide a picture of the fundamental assumptions on which an organization operates and the values that, that characterize it. And so you know, they talk about the four fundamental culture types that are plotted in the matrix. And I'm not going to really talk about that today because it does become pretty involved. But they talk about a clan culture, you know, hierarchy culture, uh, uh, an adhocracy culture and a market culture. And they go in it to define all these, you know, for example, a clan culture, a friendly place like an extended family held together by usually, you know, loyalty and tradition. You know, these are the places where there's a premium on teamwork, participation, and consensus, collaboration, and the like. And then, you know, it all goes down to the market culture, like I meant, you know, a competitive, hard-driving, results-oriented culture organization or culture or an organization where the emphasis is solely on winning um, and reputation and successfully achieving objectives. Now, one of the things that I got out of this is that sometimes there's a culture that has a mix of a lot of these different things. And so, you know, although the tool's not perfect, I think it gets people to talk. And I think a part of this is really starting that conversation. So, you know, starting a conversation to developing a positive culture, you really need to take a balanced approach. And that's different for everyone. You know, I don't care. You know, everyone tries to say, well, you know, there are best practices or better practices. I really think, you know, an organization's like a snowflake. Everyone's different. And there are a bunch of different ways you can get to that. But, you know, it all I think it all really comes back to. And, you know, I know it's sort of sort of cliche. But, you know, when we started talking about years and years ago, tone at the top or tone from the top, you know, um, you know, which recognizes that the right tone must be communicated down and through the organization. You know, I, I think that's really where it starts. And I found a paper, the, the 2020 World Economic Forum paper, 
which proposes six initiatives to design to provide what it describes as a holistic approach to organizational ethics. And those six initiatives are, you know, build a new vision for boards, improve oversight, review mission, strategy, and purpose, identify and encourage ethical leadership, increase organizational diversity and inclusion, and, and measure stakeholder trust. Now, I can go on and on and on, but, uh, you know, above all of this and what I discuss, you know, any effort to mitigate fraud risks associated with organizational culture must work proactively to actually engage employees, you know, ideally through a combination of ethics and compliance training programs, but they have to be the right programs. I mean, we all know, and we've all been to programs, some are good, some are not so good. I think you, there's there needs to be more uh, more of a critical eye and more emphasis on you know the right kinds of training based on your group what works and what doesn't work. You know there's a concept called disremember risk where they say that 90% of what you learn in a session is forgotten within a week. I think you need to really understand what that is and make sure that your training programs are designed in a way where that 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 leakage doesn't really happen and there's there are things along the way to kind of um you know, emphasize the points that are being made in those particular trainings. So it's really an ongoing process. But, you know, ultimately in this World Economic Forum paper, they note one of the things which I think is actually quite interesting. It says, I think they say creating and sustaining a strong ethical culture is key to creating an organization that makes behaving ethically as easy as possible. And I really believe that, that I, I think if you can, you know, create and create and sustain. So in other words, it's not a set and forget it exercise. It's creating and sustaining. It does take work. I mean, for crying out loud, how many times have we talked about, you know, paper programs and, you know, or, or risk assessments where we do it once and we just completely and totally forget it. So while everybody looks at governance, risk, and compliance as, as a waterfall concept, good governance leads to good risk management, good risk management drives compliance and good compliance, the bedrock of really all of this is culture. And I think that's really one of the things that we really need to start having a more serious conversation around. And one of those things that, you know, like enterprise-wide risk management is not really a popular topic in the boardroom when it really should be. Tom, if I can just chime in a quick comment with Jonathan, uh, when you were talking about the importance of tone at the top and good leadership, and I know a lot of people on one hand, I suspect we all agree. And on the other hand, I suspect we kind of roll our eyes because we hear that phrase so often. But the thing I was thinking about as I was listening to you, Jonathan, was that so often we see negative examples of poor tone at the top and all the big colossal frauds like Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes or Wynn Resorts with Steve Wynn or uh, even um, Bernie Ebers with WorldCom and Kenneth Lay back with World uh, Enron. All of the big colossal frauds always have what I call negative tone at the top and these larger than life CEOs were a total mess and they do a fantastic job of setting the culture and the tone and it's negative and look where it gets you. Um, so I don't know whether how much that is here or there to everything else we were saying, but like it really does matter because if you get tone at the top going in a negative way, it it, it always leads to a train wreck, always leads to a terrible culture. And we're, we're going to talk about that many more times over the years. Yeah, Matt, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, one of the things that I keep talking about is not only tone from the top, but tone behind the door. Um, you know, not only the message that's being sent to the organization, but the real tone, the one that you really don't see, 
you know, and, you know, if you looked at Theranos and you looked at Elizabeth Holmes and you understood the way she operated and what she did, and especially at the board level and how she basically ripped out board members for not agreeing with her, you know, I, I think those are some of the things that we all miss. And you're right, that is a negative tone from the top. But a lot of times when you talk to people at the lower lower parts of the organizations or even in the middle of the organizations, they all say, oh, they're great leaders, they're strong leaders. And, you know, so, I, I you know, I don't know what the right answer is, but I do agree that, you know, tone from the top is something that is critically important, um, you know, from a messaging standpoint. But, you know, since I do a ton of investigations, I always find sometimes that the tone at the top, it seems to be good, but the tone behind the door is something that is just absolutely, totally atrocious. Mm-hmm. Matt Kelly, uh, we have had quite the week in the world of cybersecurity. What has caught your eye about these uh, most momentous last six days? Well, uh, it's hard to know where to start, but I will take a stab at talking about the contents of the new Biden administration executive order on cybersecurity, which was published on May 12th. Uh, This ostensibly is in reaction to Colonial Pipelines and its ransomware attack that shut off gasoline supplies to like half the country. But when you actually read what is in the order, it's very clear that actually much more of this order is relevant to or stems from the SolarWinds cybersecurity attack last year, which was a total disaster for the federal government, by far the worst cybersecurity attack we have ever seen. Um, And it it is imposing several new standards, both on the federal government itself, all the agencies, how they approach cybersecurity. And for everybody listening, if you are a government contractor, and especially if you are a contractor who provides IT services to the federal government, which is big money, and there's a lot of firms that do, uh, this is going to affect you, and it's going to affect you in significant ways. And so here's some of what the order contains. Uh, First of all, uh, the order directs federal agencies to clarify the contracting language in the government contracts uh, for better sharing of threat information. So if you're a government contractor and you're providing, uh, say, some sort of software over the cloud, uh, you need to capture and preserve all data that is relevant to a cybersecurity attack, and then you need to uh, Uh, report all of that data to the feds uh, and then cooperate with the feds in any ensuing investigation, any ensuing investigation. So not just the cyber gurus from the internet security people, but you would have to cooperate with the Justice Department if this winds up becoming a criminal matter and they're going for hackers overseas. You're going to get pulled along with that. Um, So that's one area where uh, the order beefs things up. The next thing that is interesting as well is that it beefs up cybersecurity within the federal government. But in reality, when we say within the federal government, what's not said is, and all of the contractors who provide IT services to the agencies. So if you are any of those cloud-based software providers, when I say the federal government, I mean you, because you are providing those services to the federal government worker drones who are sitting there doing whatever it is they're doing with your software. Uh, So you have to do a couple of different things. Uh, We're going to see uh, a lot more uh, use of multi-factor authentication, which is where, you know, you enter in a password for your access control, and then it sends a one-time code to your cell phone, and 
if you ever renewed your password on your online bank account, you've probably encountered this before. Uh, this part of the order says that a lot more multi-factor authentication throughout the federal government, uh, a lot more of what is known as zero trust architecture. That is a fancy word for network security that really governs much more tightly how people move around a computer system. You have zero trust, that's the hook, in who the user is if you're the network and you constantly challenge uh, users who are on your network. Federal government wants a lot more zero trust architecture in its own software and technology. Um, and then uh, the last thing that it does, I think that's interesting, is stronger oversight of the software supply chain. So not just you, the government contractor, to providing your service to the feds, but where did you get your software? Where did you get all of that code that you are now packaging up in a bow and selling it to the agency of whatever? Um, you're going to have to pay more attention to that. Um, again, it's going to be a lot more multi-factor authentication, a lot more data encryption, uh, a lot more documenting of where your code came from. And if you grabbed some chunk of code uh, that was open source on the internet and you dropped it into your product, which you then stream to the federal agencies so they can use your service, you're going to have to document where all did your software code come from. By the way, poor oversight of borrowed open source code is how we had that giant, uh, was it Experian, the credit reporting agency a couple of years ago that exposed I don't know, 100 some odd million customers, uh, that all happened because they had grabbed some open source software code, put it into their product, didn't double check if that code had been compromised, which it was. Um, and a whole lot more about internal control over the third party code that you use, uh, complete with audits to confirm that all of your controls work. There's going to be some other stuff in the order as well that I'm not going to go into right here, but it's a lot. Now, for the next question about how does this really affect me, the compliance professional, it's going to affect you in a lot of ways, mostly because these are changes to cybersecurity practice that your organization is going to have to embrace that could then consequently change your compliance risks. And you're going to need to anticipate that rather than be caught flat-footed. Example of what I mean, let's go back to uh, more sharing of data for a cybersecurity breach. The feds are going to expect you to hand over much more data when you have an incident that affects them. Well, you have to think about data privacy rules. You have to think maybe about whether there are any civil litigation issues that might come up if you are giving information to the Justice Department in a civil and a criminal inquiry um, as they're chasing these guys and Kazakhstan or the Ukraine or wherever they're coming from. Um, could this wind up having other legal ramifications for you if you get pulled into that? Um, there's going to be substantial changes for a lot of government contractors about their technology. And then you're going to need to think through what are the implications for my compliance risks if we are operating in these new ways? Uh, I should also add for any internal auditors who might be listening to our podcast, I have stuff for you here too. Um, because think about it, we're going to be changing user access controls. We're gonna be redesigning processes. Uh, all of that's gonna to have to be planned out thoughtfully. All of that's gonna to have to be tested. It's gonna to have to be remediated. Um, and for all of the work that we are doing on federal cybersecurity, 
uh, issues. You still have all your other cybersecurity stuff that you've been sweating for years, like HIPAA, uh, like um, PCI DSS, if you're dealing with credit card information. So you're going to need much more capability to map out where is our data, which data do we have to pay attention to, for what regulatory compliance obligations, what are the controls we have, how are we going to map out our controls so we don't get over-controlled with duplicative things to satisfy overlapping cybersecurity regimes. It's going to be a big GRC challenge. Uh, my only good news in all of this, I think, is that I don't think the boards or the C-suite are going to grumble too much about that we need to do this. Thank you, Colonial Pipeline, for demonstrating just how much poor cybersecurity can tie 100 million people into knots as we're all lined up in gas stations uh, waiting for $5 gas from Roanoke Beach down to New Orleans, I think. Uh, and it, then uh, one last thing, even as we are recording, guys, here's breaking news, is that the hackers who pulled this stunt on Colonial Pipelines, which then paid $5 million to the hackers, paid the ransomware, those hackers known as DarkSide, they just announced they're shutting down. Now, when I get paid $5 million, I would actually say I'm retiring. I don't know. They can do what they want. But that we got a lot going on there with the cybersecurity. And uh, I think that's that's all I can cover right now. I, I've got so many things to say. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm trying to be selective. Um, I, I think firstly on dark side, I would say to anyone listening, take that with a pinch of salt. We've seen that before with gangs like... Uh, Sodaniki, who I always pronounce pronounce wrongly, and they work. I've maybe said this before, like old-fashioned Tupperware parties. That effectively, gangs like Dark Side, we we've had episodes with uh, the Revil Gang as well. They produce stuff centrally, and then they rely on home groups to demonstrate to, to to demonstrate the ransomware and try and get a price for it, which they then send back a percentage of to HQ. So these gangs frequently uh, disappear and reappear, rebranded. Um, uh, in a heartbeat, and of, often it's the same individuals involved. It seems to me on a Colonial, from what I'm reading, rightly or wrongly, it wasn't the system itself that failed, so they could deliver gas. They just couldn't record whether people had had it for free or at what price. And if that's the case, then I think there are going to be some uh, there's going to be some bigger pushback because, of course, that wasn't effectively a failure of the critical system in some respects. It was a failure of the billing system. And if you're withdrawing fuel from people just because you can't really work out a way of getting your money back, I think that's a different thing. We saw, for example, with the TravelX ransomware attack in the in the UK, it's a bit like cabin doors to manual. They still ran their operations with big exercise books that recorded transactions. And I think partly they did that to avoid criticism from financial services regulators that they just shut down shop for a few days whilst they sorted it out. 
And then maybe the last thing I'd say is that you're right that there are GDPR requirements, but often people forget the NIST directive, and that can be more aggressive in areas like this. So that can be an obligation to report within 24 hours, not 72. And there's a list of uh, organizations that would be subject to NIST. So if you're in any of the following, electricity, oil, gas, water supply, banking and financial markets, healthcare, transport, digital service, online marketplaces, cloud, search engines, then you're subject to the NIST directive as well. So you'd have to look at those reporting obligations, whether or not personal data is impacted. And then the bad news is that NIST gets extended soon to ex to bring in extra industries. So if you're involved in public electronic communications networks or services, whatever that might be, wastewater, waste management, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, chemicals, food, digital services, space, postal and courier services, or public administration, you're going to become subject to the NIST rules as well. So, uh, so I think that, that cybersecurity uh, was actually going to be my shout out topic as well. So the good news is we've halved my my shout out, but I agree with you that it's big news. And some of the actors behind this are extremely well resourced. Why? Because people keep paying them money. And uh, and and I'm pre-trailing what my uh, what my rant slash shout out is going to be as well. You know, I, I would just add one more thing there, Jonathan, specifically about Colonial Pipelines paying the ransom. Um, I don't know who the actual individuals are behind Darkside, but the U.S. government has made clear if you pay a ransom that winds up going to people in North Korea or Iran or South Sudan or something like that, you may very well get a call from OFAC about sanctions violations or heaven forbid, if your ransom goes to funding terrorists overseas, uh, you're going to get a call from the criminal division of the Justice Department. And I suspect it would not be a comfortable conversation. I, like, you really shouldn't pay these. And I have sympathy for Colonial. But uh, on the other hand, I also saw some other news report where somebody said their security could, you know, an eighth grader could hack into it. So I... I have some sympathy, but I don't have a lot. And there are significant risks, uh, legal risks, for doing what Colonial just did. No, absolutely. And it's Man, no coincidence a, that we got Man, a big a attack question. on the... Could it, uh, you mentioned uh, the executive order applies to uh, contractors and subcontractors to the federal government. Yeah. Could the standards set forth in the executive order become the uh, the best practice literally for public and private companies, even if they do not do business with the federal government, Matt? Uh, that would be the federal government's wish, I am sure. Um, so if you are a defense contractor over the next five years, we're going to move to a new compliance standard known as CMMC where you have to comply with a certain NIST protocol known as 800-53. Uh, but there is a companion NIST standard known as 
Uh, I'm sorry, 800-171 is for CMMC compliance. And there is a companion standard, 800-53, that is strikingly similar to that, that NIST has made abundantly clear. We would like all companies everywhere to embrace 853. Also, if you are a government contractor, but you are not a defense contractor, I would not be at all surprised if soon enough we see the CMMC standard for defense. I wouldn't be surprised if we see that go forth for all government contractors. So that's the hospitals, that's pharma, that's banking, that's uh, education. I think CMMC is eventually gonna become the law of the land. And it's going to have a companion standard for private businesses that is almost identical, that the government's just going to kind of lean forward and say, we'd really like you to adopt this, even if you don't have any government business with us. I mark my words, by 2024, I think that will happen. Jonathan Armstrong, uh, coming to us from an undisclosed location in London, England, uh, or other parts of England. (laughs) What's been on your mind? Well, I've been looking at, unfortunately, more woe for the SFO. Um, They uh, have, uh, there's just been two acquittals of two former Serco employees, Simon Marshall and Nicholas Woods. Now, it's important to say that it's fundamental to the rule of law that you're innocent until or unless proved guilty. Marshall and Woods have both been acquitted by the court, and nothing in my remarks should be taken in any way to undermine their innocence. Um, Now, the case against Marshall and Woods was about as big a loss as you can get for the SFO. The judge took the case away from the jury, effectively saying that any conviction would be unsafe. And the judge also refused a retrial on the basis that it wasn't in the public interest. And what seems to have happened is that the SFO relied on information given by Serco, the employer of Marshall and Woods, as part of Serco's DPA. And it seems that they disclosed uh, information which pointed to Marshall and Woods's guilt, but not to their innocence. Now, to take a step back, this was a particularly difficult uh, fraud case, not a bribery case. What happened here is that uh, Serco were granted a contract by the UK Ministry of Justice to tag Uh, uh, offenders who were being released into public. Uh, The uh, MOJ had concerns that Serco had effectively bent the pricing. It was a very odd contract where Serco effectively got an agreed margin for running the contract. And uh, Serco uh, admitted that they'd effectively inflated the margin by doing some cross uh, subsidiary transactions. And Serco effectively said that three individuals were responsible. And we don't know whether that included Marshall and Woods in the three. Uh, 
but they agreed a deferred prosecution agreement with the SFO, and they agreed to pay 19.2 million sterling as a penalty, 3.7 million towards the SFO's costs, and they had a total settlement with government of some 70 million uh, uh, sterling as a civil settlement, of which 12.8 million, it seems, related to this particular contract. And as part of their DPA, they also agreed to strengthen their compliance program, and they agreed to produce evidence which uh, may help with the investigation into individuals and perhaps helped with the eventual decision to prosecute Marshall and Woods. And effectively, it seems the evidence that Marshall and Woods weren't given is that other people at Circa, it appears, were at it as well, and also altering the uh, financial aspects of these agreements. And if that is the case, then I think there's, again, some really serious lessons here. First of all, has the SFO agreed an SFO, uh, a DPA with Serco for part of its conduct? And if that's the case, does the DPA get reopened so that they can look at other potential wrongdoing? Or does the investigation reopen to look at other potential uh, uh, wrongdoing? Secondly, I think there's some problems generally with what are perceived to be outsourced investigations. Now, this was an unusual case. Part of the cooperation, apparently from Circo, is that they agreed not to interview individuals involved, presumably to enable the SFO to have first go at those interviews. It's still scarce, the element of details uh, that we uh, have, and we only have the agreed statement of facts, which the SFO has just released after the prosecution against individuals failed. Secondly, I think it gives us lessons for internal investigations. Often, it's very difficult to conduct an internal investigation to the criminal standard, and uh, some former prosecutors particularly aren't that good at it because they have powers as prosecutors that they don't have when they move to Civvy Street. And it's important to remember that you have to uh, not prejudice individuals' rights. You have to be fair with them as well as being fair with the company, as well as being fair with government if, uh, if necessary. And if people aren't prepared to be fair, then prosecutions like this are going to keep failing. And then if we look at this more generally, this is now 11-0. That's the score on the door for the SFO. On 11 occasions, they've tried to prosecute individuals, it seems, after de deferred prosecution agreements, and they've won none of those cases. 11 cases, none. Now, for context, the Football Association has a rule in junior football. Uh, football's obviously the proper name. You would call it soccer. Uh, where if there's any game where the margin is greater than four goals, so 4-0, then, the then the team that's losing is allowed to bring on an extra player 
Uh, and if the margin increases, they can keep bringing on more. So if this were a junior soccer game, already there would have been an intervention at 4-0, and we're up to 11-0 now. So what are the problems and how do we fix it? Well, I think, to be fair, some of it is circumstantial. It's always harder to get a conviction against individuals than to get a confession from corporations. And I don't think the track record, Tom, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, is substantially better in the US. I think that as a general rule, it's easier for government to get, an in, uh, to get a corporation to come and pay up than it is for an individual to agree to be convicted. And of course, we can't have plea, plea bargains against individuals. And we've talked about other cases like Una Oil, where even those who've been convicted are now uh, chancing their arm uh, with uh, appeals. But there are some fundamental dif uh, dangers, I think, with the system. One, of course, is that the SFO has this much trumpeted single agency system. So with conventional prosecutions in England and Wales, the police investigate, the Crown Prosecution Service review that investigation, and they decide whether to bring charges or not. The SFO system was brought in uh, through legislation in 1987, and effectively it said that because cases like this were too complex, then we could have a single agency that investigated and prosecuted. And I think possibly we've got to review that system. If there were four eyes on this prosecution, would they have spotted the errors in failure to disclose information earlier? Secondly, I think we've had some overreach by the SFO. I'm not suggesting that that's the case here, but cases like KBR suggest that they were perhaps interested in uh, you know, looking for uh, big, impactful investigations rather than perhaps focus on uh, doing what they're meant to be doing properly. And it's a shame that what would seem to be a very simple mistake in the disclosure of evidence uh, has, uh, it seems, caused the, uh, the the trial to stop here. For balance, I should say that sometimes the CPS get it wrong as well. We've had sexual offence cases, for example, where they fail to disclose information. And then I think climactically, it doesn't come at a good time for the SFO. Particularly, we've talked about it before, about um, uh, Tom Martin, for example, and the allegations that he's made about uh, interference in some of these cases and the allegations that he's made about the the climate within the SFO. Um, and, and I guess the last thing to say is it is all very unfortunate. You know, the, uh, the SFO did secure a DPO. They did get substantial payments from Serco, but that's been overshadowed, I think, by the failure of the prosecutions against these two individuals. Gentlemen, we're now on to fan favorites of shout-outs and rants. We will go with the same order. Jay Rosen, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, and then I'll sit in with mine. Jay Rosen, do you have a rant and or shout-out for us? 
Tom, I definitely have a rant and my shout out goes or rather my rant goes to the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Tom Brady, who as soon as he heard that his Tampa Bay Buccaneers would be journeying to Foxborough, Mass., he took to the Twitter machine and announced, it's like when your high school friends meet your college friends. Seems harmless enough. But then Tom Brady Sr., appearing on a local Boston radio station, decided to poke the sleeping bear and share the following. I started salivating when I saw that we're playing the Patriots in the fourth game of the season, and we're coming up here to make our record 4-0, exclamation point. Those Brady men, it seems they always need to have a chip or two on their shoulders. So, Jonathan Marks, do you have a a shout-out or rant for us today? I got a rant. Um, I I don't know if it's a good one, but I certainly have one. Um, My rant is this guy, Bob Baffert. I don't know anything about horse racing, but I'd love to interview this guy and get him in the box. What a liar, 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 pants on fire. Um, He doesn't know who drugged his horse. You've got to be kidding me. They spend millions of dollars on these things. Nobody lets them out of their sight. There's cameras everywhere, but this guy doesn't know who drugged his horse. For all of you that lost, you know, on wagering, you know, what was the, the horse's name? Medina Spirit you know, who failed the drug test in the second place, Mandaloon or whatever his name was. I don't, I don't even follow horse rating racing, but I was watching this guy talk about the, the horse being drugged. And I, you know, based on all of my interviews, I'm like, this guy's an absolute liar, 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 pants on fire. So I don't know if you could file a lawsuit against this clown, but I think if the people that came in second place that deserve their first place winnings, I know you can't do that. They, they tell you that they disclose that. But this guy, the horse shouldn't be banned from running in the, you know, in the, uh, what is it, the Preakness this weekend or something. This guy should be banned from horse racing for life. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Bob, if you're ever around, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to interview you. And I guarantee I get you to convince me, not convince me that you didn't drug your horse. That's my rant. Gentlemen, the bar has been set now. So, Matt <laughs> Kelly, what do you have for us? Well, geez, I'm I'm just going to go easy this month. Uh, I have a shout out uh, as I sit here nursing my sore shoulder from my second vaccine shot. I was just going to give a shout out to Moderna Pharmaceuticals because they are the ones who gave me this vaccine. And to all the people who spent many years at Moderna long before COVID and this vaccine came along, losing boatloads of money. Uh, betting on this mRNA technology that they had pioneered. And uh, finally, now it paid off for them and the rest of the world. And then to top it all off, Moderna is based right here in my hometown of Cambridge. So I got to use my uh, hometown vaccine maker to uh, get me vaccinated and shout out to them. Jonathan Armstrong. Yeah, I mean, I sort of endorse Matt shout out. I was talking to somebody this morning who's uh, a general counsel at a, a health uh, a firm, and she used to be a nurse before she qualified as a lawyer. And she'd gone back to the NHS and was vaccinating people. So shout out not only to the drugs company, but to all those people who've uh, who've gone and stepped up to the plate when uh, when needed. My uh, shout out was actually to the BBC. I know I criticised them a couple of weeks ago for their failure to look at Boris's uh, affairs, but I give them credit for trying to 
expose another corrupt regime this week by uh, promoting a podcast, which I'd recommend. It's uh, uh, called um, The Lazarus Heist. And it uh, again picks up on something that Matt's just talked about. Um, There is a connection, of course, between ransomware and cyber attacks and nation states who are trying to do us harm. And there's also a link that Matt alluded to with organized crime and all sorts of bad things happening. And of course, some have speculated how a bankrupt nation like North Korea can pay for all of the insurrection and torment that it's caused, how it can pay for inter-ballistic missiles, and how it can you know, uh, seemingly create from a blank sheet of paper missile technology that threatens the US and other civilized nations. And it seems from the BBC investigation that in part the answer is uh, ransomware and the cyber attacks. And the the podcast series is ongoing. As I say, I'd recommend it. It starts with the hack on Sony in 2014, which is something of a revenge attack because you'll remember that Sony had made a film which poked fun at the leader of North Korea. And it talks about how these, let's call them skills, have been developed by gangs with North Korean connections. They attempted to steal one billion US dollars in one heist against a a Bangladeshi bank, which was stopped purely, it seems, because the US Federal Reserve had a sanction, a piece of sanctions checking software that brought up a red flag, not because of the transactions, but because the name of one of the payees seemed to match a sanctions list in the software. And so that uh, heist seems to have been stopped, but they seem to have stolen at least $150 million from other banks. There's also some connection between attacks on the health service. So WannaCry, for example, has shut down hospitals in the UK and elsewhere. And there is an ongoing investigation into attacks on AstraZeneca, which may have slowed down the COVID vaccination program. But my my sort of rant builds on what Matt's already said. Often we see ransomware as, as almost like a victimless crime. People pay ransoms because it's administratively convenient to do so, or because they think it's a cost of doing business and it's cheaper than the regulatory effects, or because their insurers have paid and they didn't negotiate a clause with their insurers to say, thou shalt not pay ransoms without asking us first. And these aren't victimless crimes. When we pay ransomware to gangs, we fund terrorism. We fund the drugs deaths in our own backyard. 
we fund weapons being used by ne'er-do-wells in drug-related incidents, in heists, in kidnaps of live individuals. And we fund international warfare and threats, and we fund the, the missiles that point at us and our loved ones. So it started off as a maybe a praise to the BBC for having the guts to talk about this, because post-Sony, many mainstream broadcasters have pulled any criticism of the North Korean government. Kudos to the BBC for stepping up to the plate. But a plea to all of those involved in compliance positions in corporations that are listening to us, watch where you're paying the money to before you pay it or sanction those payments. Here endeth the lesson. Amen. Uh, I'm going to shout out at the risk of the ire of Jonathan Marks and Matt Kelly to the New York Yankee baseball fans, well known for their uh, rowdy behavior, well known for their taunting of opponents. And with only 10,000 people in Yankee Stadium, the New York Yankee fans so disturbed the Houston Astros on their first visit to Yankee Stadium since the Astros cheating scandal broke that the Astros not only complained, uh, but they said they're being mean to us and they're not being nice to us. And they shouldn't be able to criticize uh, the team for cheating some four years ago when only four members of the 2017 World Series champs are still on. And, you know, this, this is just not nice and this is really not fair. And this really bothers us. Well, to those whining Astros, get used to it, buckaroos. You're going to get that for the rest of your life. You have cheated and you got caught and you knew what the consequences are. And if you didn't, it's because you had your head in the sand. So shout out to the Yankee fans for giving it to the Astros. And uh, I'm going to give a second shout out today to a friend of mine, Rob Emmons. Rob Emmons is a plaintiff's lawyer in Houston who filed a lawsuit on behalf of Mike Olsinger. Mike Olsinger was one of the victims of the Astros cheating scandal. Uh, and after one unfortunate night where the Astros stole all of his signals, uh, he never pitched in the, in the big leagues again. It was so bad. And he's filed a civil lawsuit for tortious interference with business relations. And Rob Ammons had the guts to uh, file that in Houston, Harris County, Texas. So shout out to Rob Ammons. Shout out to the Yankee fans and, and uh, keep giving it to them. Uh, gentlemen, this has been a great uh, episode as always, and I look forward to uh, getting together again. Thank you all. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future. Uh, please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. 
Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.